Welcome, everyone, to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. This episode is going to be a little different because instead of diving into a tip from how to get the most out of college, I talk with college success coach Maya Anderson about the common misconceptions out there about college. We go through everything from orientation to technology to libraries to career planning and more. And for each, we try and debunk the myths and we try and provide some insights from our experience and all the research out there on how students succeed. Have a listen and let me know what other myths you see out there that we ought to debunk next. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm so delighted to have Maya Anderson, who's a student success coach and a retention specialist at the Student Empowered, here with me today. And we're going to go back and forth, not exactly a debate, because I think we're on the same page about these things, but we're going to go back and forth and debunk some of these assumptions because try as we might, many of these assumptions still persist and we would much rather students persist than outdated assumptions. So let's dig in. Welcome, Maya. Thank you. I love this opportunity to join you. Your book truly is one of my favorites because the format is perfect for students who are not readers, and most students are not readers, as we've all learned. Of course, skimmers and browsers and jump-arounders. Oh my gosh, they are so much browsers. They are so much browsers, yes. Very browsy. Yes. Yes. We've given them short attention spans. Tell us a little bit about the Student Empowered before we dive in. So Student Empowered was born out of what happened to higher education during COVID. And so I have worked on campuses for years in multiple states and multiple types of campuses. And students left for spring break and they never came back to campus to finish the semester and potentially even to attend in the summer. And the students, at the time, I was actually working with a cohort of students through a grant-funded program. Those students lost all of that support, and those were the students that needed it the most. And so once we relocated, we relocated out of state in the middle of COVID, because why not? I decided to take a leap and hang out my shingles, so to speak, and start networking as a college success coach and retention specialist. And I think today, the things we talk about are going to really amplify how the retention is just as relevant as the admissions, as the success. It's all so many critical pieces, getting the student from the beginning to crossing the stage with a diploma and then life after college. Yeah, a, a funnel that's full of holes isn't really a, a funnel. That's something else entirely. A sieve. It is a sieve, and I feel like it is like kind of like a progressive one. Like the holes start large, and then they get smaller. And unfortunately, we lose so many students at the jump. And the ones that continue on, we are not retaining the student in multiple ways and multiple facets throughout their college journey. So let's talk about some of the assumptions we can debunk to help students persist, to retain students, to help them succeed 
And I, I don't know if we're going to go totally chronological here, but orientation, welcome week feels like a good place to start. I think these are designed around the assumption that students can arrive on campus from wherever they are and learn everything they need to know to feel oriented and supported and then dive right into college following a kind of like a just-in-case learning model instead of a just-in-time learning model. So tell us about orientation, Maya. So, you know, Elliot, it's a bit complicated for me to criticize orientation. I have to be honest. I came up in higher ed through orientation and my time on the orientation staff is such a large highlight for me. But I also am keenly aware there are so many ways we can do better now. At the time, there was only, you know, the traditional arrive on campus, so on and so forth type process. But now there's multitudes of ways that students could attend orientation. But the first and most critical piece of information is that institutions that are charging a cost, charging a fee to attend orientation, right there are indicating that they are not there to serve the student and to serve every student. Charging a fee for orientation creates inequity from the very beginning. There is an assumption that students are in the position to pay for that additional cost outside of their cost of attendance when potentially they are working a summer job to earn money for college. So they're having to take time off, but then also pay fees. The cost of orientation, yes, the cost of orientation should be included in your cost of your first year fees and cost of attendance. We are not going to get students on campus for orientation programs or get students attending orientation programs in whatever way they're presented if there is a cost associated. And then even a tier situation of a cost that's in person and then a different cost for virtual attendance is even more frustrating to me because it creates the myth of one is better than the other. The other part about orientation, I frequently tell students before they attend orientation, it's going to feel like you're drinking off a fire hose. You are going to arrive really excited and just bright eyed and ready to take it all in. And by hour three, you are going to feel like you are drowning because you are drinking off a fire hose, just the sheer quantity of information that is coming to you, which also one thing I've learned, and I think that this is something that is really relevant for Gen Z students is where orientation could do so much better. And that is give them a minute, build in reflection, build in small group times for students to ask questions about things that maybe arose and that they need to ask right then and there. If we're not building in that time into orientation, students are leaving, trying to make sense of the wealth of information that came to them. The cognitive load is so high. By the time a student has completed a full day of orientation, they don't know what they should be looking for especially if it's a one day. If it's a one day program, students are just getting just fractions of information, but rapid fire and little opportunity for them to really say like, hey, I have a question about this. The other part is something that I think would be a great opportunity. And this is something maybe more schools are doing this. I would hope that they are. But 
there should be an orientation chat box. There should be something that when a student attends orientation, let's send them some sort of communication immediately thereafter and say, here's a chat bot. If something came to mind, ask us a quick question That's because the idea. expectation for the student to know who to ask is a terrible assumption. I mean, that is just the worst assumption that an institution can make is that the student knows who to go to because they went to orientation. The other thing I've seen that's really interesting is defining who the orientation is for. I know like UT Austin made great strides in improving the retention of first-gen students in part by involving families in orientation because they need to get oriented about how schedules, expectations, availability, priorities, how all these things shift. And a lot of that resetting or communication can happen during an orientation if the family or, or family members are, are present in addition to the student. Really quickly about the family thing. I feel like I just need to throw this Go in for here. It. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Every student family can benefit from attending orientation and there should be opportunities for families to ask questions of students, of administrators, of every possible department on campus that should be there. I agree with you. It shouldn't be exclusive to one population. Okay, so now that I've done my family spiel, let's talk about the secret language of higher education. Well, I think another thing to debunk is that students know what everything's called and they understand all the terminology and the language and the jargon of higher ed. And I think this is a big barrier, certainly for first-gen students who maybe have less of that tacit knowledge about what all these things are called, but really for everyone. I, I don't think many people know what a bursar is. You know, some people maybe know what a registrar is. Lots of people don't know what office hours are. Very few people know that R stands for Thursday. And there's all this hidden curriculum, hidden language, hidden terminology of higher ed. And I think it's a sign, it's a real litmus test as to whether or not you're student-centered. You know, if you're a student searching for college and you want to see if one is focused on you, I think a great hack or a great shortcut on that is like, what do they call these various services? You know, do they call it Bursar? Do they call it student financial services, for instance? So I think the more that institutions can get rid of the jargon, talk about things in plain English, talk about things in ways that families talk about them, the more likely those services are to be used and therefore useful. If there's one thing I've seen in consulting with hundred different colleges, they offer amazing things like so many amazing services, career services, counseling, advising, coaching, you name it. And when you talk to all these people who were busting their butts to offer amazing services to support the students, they all say the same thing. You know, we wish more students would take advantage of this. Very few programs and services are just like overrun with demand. I guess counseling is probably one of those. But by and large, there are so many things that go underutilized because they're called something that students don't you know, don't understand. The listener cannot see that I am enthusiastically nodding my head the whole time you're saying this. So all of the families and students I work with, I actually have built them an encyclopedia of terms, if you will. I know I'm using a very old school term with encyclopedia, but I've built them a glossary of terms for exactly this reason. We 
speak the language of higher education and we interact with students using that language with the assumption that they are fluent in it. They are not fluent in the language of higher education. Right. Let's now move to number three, which is another kind of fluency. Students are younger, so they must be tech savvy. They grew up with technology, immersed in technology. They're digital natives. They know everything about technology and don't need any instruction and can figure it all out on their own, right? So I love that the assumption that digital native means that students are tech savvy. Like this is one of my favorite things. So frequently I hear things like, well, if they understand social media, then they should understand this X component about attending college. Or why aren't they checking their email? When students' email is because, not... Because they're fluent in social media. Those are competing things, not complimentary things. Today's student is communicating through text. They're communicating through messaging services from social media apps. The list goes on. They are not communicating via email. And honestly, Elliot, I cannot think of a single student that I have worked with in college success coaching. There isn't a single student I've worked with that knows how to sync their campus email to the phone app on their phone. I literally walk every single one of them through that process. And I don't know what I'm going to do when a student comes to you with an Android because I, I don't understand how to do it on that. I'm always grateful that they have an iPhone. But yes, this assumption that they like they're digital natives, so they'll be checking their email all the time. Also, another terrible assumption is that students are going to understand all of their campus portals and what each of them individually mean and why they would log on portal one for their billing, for their financial aid information, for all of their student business, as I tend to call it, and then log into portal two for all of their academic business and that portal one and portal two never talk to each other. They never have a conversation. And then if they're in housing, they have a housing portal. Like we just continue to ask them to log into different places to accomplish tasks where like technology, we can do better. We can do better. And why are we creating all of these complex systems for students to complete tasks that to them seem to all work together. They don't understand that there is a business side of the house. There's an academic side of the house. There's a student life side of the house. And honestly, the student should never have to know that. We're taking away those silos in higher ed is so critical and so important to make the student experience have a greater sense of continuum. And this is where retention happens. That's a great point. Even the most savvy student can get flummoxed by the amount of like digital sprawl that's overtaking colleges and universities where there's separate systems for everything. You know, one thing I like to point to is space booking. You know, if, if a student wants to book a room in the library, that's typically one system. The student union is typically another. Then their department, you know, business engineering, whatever it might be, is typically a third. And, you know, three different systems to do the same task. And some of them may sync up with their calendar. Others may not. This is the Google generation. This yeah. is not a collective group of people that had 
to go to multiple places to get the same results. The Google generation, they're used to one place. Where I get everything I need is one place. Please don't make me complete the same task over and over in different places for the same result. So what's our next assumption? What are we going to debunk next? Okay, so what you have next is really critical because this touches on the cost of attendance. I love that you are connecting, making a correlation between price and cost. I think that's a really critical piece of information that families and students don't understand. So let's talk about this. You know, there's price, cost, and quality. And what's interesting is that those used to more or less be a point. Those used to kind of be three different ways of saying the same thing. What something cost was often the price and was often an indicator of quality. But now those points have diverged and now it's kind of a triangle. And the relationship between them or the correlation between them is different. And that's, you know, for a number of reasons. You know, one is the, the marketing has gotten a lot better and, you know, the science of enrollment management has gotten a lot better. And, you know, people now charge, they charge more, you know, than the cost per se, and then they discount it. So a lot of people don't know that, for instance, at private colleges, a couple of years ago, we crossed a pretty interesting threshold. The fact that now the average discount rate is greater than 50%. So at the average student pays less than half of what the advertised price is. And so price and cost are different and a higher price isn't necessarily an indicator of higher quality. But the good thing is there are lots of other measures of quality out there. And, you know, my favorite is probably the college scorecard, which is a department of ed resource where you can learn, you can look at the cost or the price. Again, those are two different things. You can look at career placement. You can look at starting salaries. You can look at graduation rate. So you can get at least a broad brush view of the return on that investment of the, you know, of the quality. And it may be that, you know, if there's a state university that's, you know, one third the cost and twice the, the ROI when you look at job placement by major, or it may be that actually you can get a better deal at a private institution because of that discount rate. So everything got more complicated. We went from three things on top of each other point to now a triangle and the shape of that triangle is shifting based on marketing, based on enrollment management algorithms, and based on public perceptions and, and rankings. But I think if, if people do their homework, go to the college scorecard, go to other sites, you can kind of debunk this and get your own sense of how quality and value relates to price. Elliot, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm going to just like really throw a wrench into this because we didn't even, we didn't even maybe pre-plan to have this conversation. So I'm just going to throw it in and we will maybe do a special episode about this. But collegiate student athletes don't understand that their scholarship covers the cost of attendance and the cost of attendance is not the same as the price. And this is yet another one of those, let's take into consideration 
how many student athletes are first gen. So we start making so many assumptions that the student understands these things. And then when a student has a price or an extra fee that was not included in the cost of attendance, the confusion arises. And so, yes, it's that I think there was an effort to make it a cohesive dollar amount. And all it's done is created confusion for most people. It has. And one other quick shout out, another great resource beyond the college scorecard and somebody we've had on the, the podcast is something called Tuition Fit, where it's kind yes. of like pay scale. You upload your award letter in exchange for sharing that information, which gets anonymized. You get guidance on A, how to interpret that award letter and B, how it compares to other people. So you have some, you know, it's kind of like when you're buying an airline ticket, like having some sense of what the people that are seated next to you paid for their ticket and knowing whether or not you're getting a good deal. So that's also something people can discuss. I love your shout out to Tuition Fit. I think if in a perfect world, we would have Mark talking to every senior class at every high school, helping students understand how to be wise about their costs of attendance and the quality, the price, and so on and so forth. Mark, we're rooting so, for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the more people that, that use it, the more value they get because the database grows and, and you get to see even more comparisons to even more people like you. So, yes, be cool. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, we, we've talked about the search and the price and the technology and the terminology. One of the other big shifts that students experience when they move from high school to college is in the supports they have. And it's going to be exactly the same, right? We should just yeah. keep that in mind. Oh, it's different? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, so, so of course. Yeah. So Elliot, this actually is all tied together so well because the silos on campuses have created a very convoluted experience for students. High school is a one-stop shop. You go there every morning, you go to class. If you need resources, somebody in the building knows what it is. They know who the person is. You walk out of your classroom or out of the meeting room you're in, whatever location you are, and you go to the person that has the thing you need. When you go to campus, there, that isn't a thing. There isn't a one-stop shop for most student needs. Yes, housing could be a one-stop shop, but students don't understand the hierarchy of housing and who they talk to for what their need might be. But the list goes on. If a student goes to a professor and expresses a need, the assumption is that the professor knows where on campus that that student would go and that the student is going to be able to navigate themselves there. That's the other component that I think is really important. The mental shift for students when they get to college of realizing, oh my goodness, this is nothing like the high school experience. I actually have to go to the place to find the thing I need, knowing that I may be redirected one, two, three times. Yeah. I mean, I think most campuses do a fantastic job of providing like 
a massive amount of support. The problem is they're dealing with a scale shift where there's so many more students, you know, spread over a larger geography, you know, physically and digitally. And it requires that shift in mindset among students where they have to ask for the help instead of a school or, you know, or a parent, you know, a very common one is, you know, not engaging the office of disability services or, you know, the accessibility office to understand like what accommodations you get, like if you have learning differences, for instance, or whatever it might be, like the idea that like, oh, this doesn't come to me. I have to go ask for it. I have to go request it. So you've got a bigger scale and you've got this shift in mindset from like push to pull, which is tough. I agree. And I think that you're such a good example. Families and students have mastered the art of navigating accommodations in K through 12. Post-secondary is, it's a wild west in comparison. And if you are a student with a learning difference, or you are the parent of a student with a learning difference, if you don't understand how significantly different the process is, you may never use those accommodations. And then, as you were saying that, Civ, that's the first drop. That's the first drop for a student. And if an institution prides itself in the accommodations it provides, that's great. But what are they doing to actually not make it a passive support system? And the passiveness of support and resources on campuses is it's chronic. You can be out at every student fair and at every table. But if students don't understand the purpose of your office, once again, that language understanding the language of higher education dilemma, they're not going to stop at your table. And honestly, it's very rare that a pass-through with some sort of freebie that they take is really going to help them understand why the office exists, its relevance, and what part of their college journey is where they start using that office. So for example, the term career services. Students think that career services is there to help them get a job. What they don't understand is that if you start working with career services your first year of college, by the time you graduate, you have established a working relationship with somebody who can be your navigator to life after college. Absolutely. But because the term is career services, the assumption is that you go there at the beginning of your last year of college and they have a job waiting for you and it's just smooth sailing from there. Yeah. One of the things I, I love about how career services is getting reinvented and maybe Andy Chan at Wake Forest, you know, sparked a lot of this with his career services must die TED talk and, you know, die and be reborn, obviously not die forever, but yes. that's you know, the way I think that rebirth is really exciting is the overlap or the integration of career and curriculum. So instead of saying like, oh, students should go to career services as this extra thing in spare time they don't have, it's actually becoming part of the curriculum and you have a class you can get credit for on career exploration where maybe you interview people, maybe you shadow people, maybe you identify some role models. Maybe you talk to them about their path. Maybe you figure out if that's the right path for you. 
maybe as part of that exploration, you identify some projects you can work on, you know, acting kind of like as a consultant as part of a class project. So you're, you know, you're doing good, you're building a portfolio, you're trying out a career path, or you're, you're trying it out through an internship. The idea that those supports, they move from push to pull, but maybe there's some way to push some of them out to students and integrate some things as part of curriculum. So it's not an extra thing. And these things aren't working at cross purposes, but they're like mutually reinforcing. Yes. And also this is where there is kind of a head exploding moment for a lot of families and students that I work with. When I say to the student, my expectation is, is that you make a visit to career services during your first semester. I usually have one member of their family that is meeting with us have an expression of confusion as to why you would do that during the first year. Because for them as a student, when they went to college, they didn't go to career services during their first year of college. They didn't think about career services until year three. I mean, yeah. that was that was the norm. The norm was you get through the first two years and then year three is when you do a pass-through. Yeah. You just do a pass-through and you don't actually even utilize the resource. You just get to know it your third year. That is the old model of career services. And in all honesty, that model was ineffective. That model was not effective for the college graduate. And I wholeheartedly agree that this transformation of career services being part of a curriculum of higher ed, being part of the student experience from the very beginning, this is truly how we are graduating students from college ready for life after college. Like life after college matters and students need to know what that looks like. Yeah. It's not just getting to college, it's getting through college. Yes. And then what do yeah. you do afterwards? Absolutely. Yeah. Through, through absolutely. To something, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we just yeah. debunked the idea that academics and career are separate. What about the idea that really, you know, students who have excelled in high school, students who are smart, determined, passionate, hardworking, what about the idea that they're going to sail through college? It's going to be easy for them. Yes. Yeah, so I'm not here to say that high achieving high school students are not going to be high achieving in college. What I will make a point of saying is that high achieving students are not ready for the first time that they are not high achieving in college. What you did in high school, what your GPA was in high school, the clubs you belong to, the list goes on in high school. It doesn't matter once you go to college. All of that was part of your K through 12 life. And your K through 12 life has been left behind. And so the assumption that high achieving students will automatically do well in college. For example, I have a student that I'm working with right now and they registered for classes. They attended one of the first orientations and registered for classes. And the advisor said, well, you had it three nine in high school. And so this schedule will work perfect for you. That makes zero sense to me because you didn't ask the student if putting the courses that they're taking their first semester together play to their strength. You didn't ask the student 
did they take four years? I mean, hopefully, you know that they took four years of math or did not. If they did, they are absolutely ready for math. But if they didn't, there's been a gap. And so there's this idea that college readiness and college success happened in the classroom. College readiness is well beyond the classroom and college success happens well beyond the classroom. So college success is beyond academics and it's, it's having that resilience and that network and that support to deal with those times when there are setbacks. And, you know, even if you're excelling, you're not always excelling. That's such a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I certainly found in the research for my book was just the importance of working in groups, whether it's a study group or it's a project team for a class project, that team really not only allows you to divide and conquer and like share the workload, whether it's studying for a test or, you know, working on a project, but it's also that social emotional support of like, hey, this was hard for me too. And just because this is hard doesn't mean you don't belong here. And I think, you know, sometimes we were talking about when people leave higher education, a lot of it is when they do get that bad grade and then imposter syndrome kicks in and they think, oh, you know, I'm not doing well in the gateway engineering course. Maybe I shouldn't be an engineer after all. And, you know, then they meet with a perhaps well-meaning advisor who maybe reinforces that and then all of a sudden they switch majors or they stop out. And I think seeing those setbacks as common and temporary is so critical. Yes, to all of those things, the well-meaning advisor. I I am not going to say that I have not been that person once or twice. When I was young in higher ed, I was still in that place of the transactional nature of college. College is not transactional in nature whatsoever. And for students, they are used to a transactional type experience because that's what K through 12 is. And so, yes, to that well-meaning advisor, because the student has started to make their experience transactional. So I'm in the class. I'm not doing well in the class. So then that means I don't get to check the box and I don't get to move on. So then you have a conversation with somebody who says, yeah, you probably aren't in the right place. And then, as you said, that imposter syndrome, like that imposter syndrome is having a heyday. It is roaring to the front and that student then begins to doubt everything that they are doing. Am I at the right campus? Is this the campus for me? Did I pick the wrong roommate? Did I pick the wrong major? The list goes on because when students are caught up in that spiral of imposter looking for the thing that shows them that they're not supposed to be there hearing from a well-meaning person that tells them, yes, it's wrong, the list goes on. Students, when they're caught up in that spiral of thoughts, they lack the maturity, no fault whatsoever of, of the student. That's just your brain has betrayed you. But they, they're not going to sit back and reevaluate. And especially if you've been high achieving, because if you've been high achieving, you haven't had to sit back and reevaluate because you are known as the high achieving student on your campus. And so by default, you just keep moving to the top of the class, the right. top of everything. So I think we've got time to debunk one more thing. 
I mean, I will tell you something. I think that this is actually right in line with so many things we've talked about. But students, critical thinking. Students do not arrive on college with the skill of critical thinking. And what students don't realize is that their library is actually the place where critical thinking happens. So uh, let's talk more about libraries. Like, let's talk more about that yeah. library isn't just a building with books. Yeah. Well, if you think about those core skills like critical thinking, like creativity, like communications, so many of those can be learned at the library. And on many campuses, there's a, a transformation underway from a library as a place to, to access information to real hubs for creativity and student success because they... They bring together all the different services, spaces, and supports that students need. If you think about students who are not just studying for tests and writing papers, but doing projects, the library can be the place where they help you conduct the research. The library can be the place to help you hone that presentation. The library can even be the place to help you hone the paper or the script for that presentation or for that video that you're making and edit the video in the media lab or even make the prototype in a makerspace. So it kind of is the one-stop shop for these key 21st century skills, the skills that students want, you know, and employers want students to have. And I think it's really an untapped resource. And students know to go to the library to study, but going beyond that is really the key thing. And it's back to this push-pull dynamic we've been talking about. And interestingly enough, Brightspot's most recent National Student Experience Survey, we found that 76% of students were, were satisfied with library spaces, which was actually the second highest thing on, on the whole survey, but only 63% were satisfied with library services. So there's still some work to be done there to make those visible, accessible, inclusive, to get the word out and encourage students to ask for them, but also to push them out to students, whether it's at, you know, a reimagined orientation or part of career services or as they work on real world projects or, or throughout their whole experience. I absolutely agree. I know for my generation, we grew up going to the library. Because you had to. That's where all the information was. Yes. And the people who knew about it, they directed you to the right place, but they also... If you said, I want to know more about, they taught you the skill of critical thinking because they asked questions. So you want to know more about, well, what part about it? Why? What other thing are you looking for? The critical thinking happened from the librarian. That's where it happened for us. There is a, a different generation of students that the library has not been that same experience for them. And then they are now sitting in the classroom and professors are frustrated that students don't have that critical thinking skill. The students aren't investigated. The students don't understand how to cite their sources or what is a good source. And students don't realize like, the library is your best friend. I mean, it really is. I kind of laugh at myself at how much I utilize the library as a student and how much I push my students. Like, the library is your place. Go talk to somebody there. You'll be surprised to find out all of the things that your library can do for you. And like you said, 
so much more than books, so much more than books. And big thing for students that they don't want to do is a speech class, right? They don't want to do a speech class. They don't realize that they can go into a room in the library and make use of the resources in that room and work out all the kinks so that they can confidently do a public speaking or a speech class. The library is your friend, people. Go use it. Library is your friend. Well, Maya, this is great. I feel like we debunked a lot of these assumptions that I think will help students and families and help people at colleges and universities who are really focused on being student-centered and creating remarkable and supportive student experiences. So it's been a real, real pleasure to talk about everything from orientation to libraries, to supports, to technology, to terminology. And let's hope this helps debunk some of these assumptions and helps students persist instead. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Elliot, so much for your time. I always appreciate conversations about higher education from the perspective of individuals that haven't done the same thing I have done in higher ed, because I always leave a little smarter. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book. Mm